You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Mac Weldon, it is better than what you're wearing right now. As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, I am a fan of Mac Weldon primarily because it has super fancy anti-microbial. I'm going to get that right one of these days, but anyway, it doesn't stink. That is the magic of Mac Weldon underwear, their special line of silver underwear, which is what I make my husband wear. Basically, like a lot of the advertisers that I have these days are involved in making my marriage a little bit happier. And that's the way that Mack Weldon does it. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. And not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. They're good for going out, going to work, going out on dates, or just everyday life, which, quite frankly, is how my husband uses his Mack Weldon stuff. It's his, like, couch gear, primarily. I wish it was more going out stuff. Maybe another sponsor will take over the task of getting that part of my relationship in order. But go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code FRIENDS. Again, MacWeldon it is better than whatever you're wearing right now. And you can go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code FRIENDS. Hey, it's Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, one of the family of Crooked Media Podcasts, which you probably already subscribe to, but you should start subscribing if you haven't to Pod Save America, Pod Save the World, and the annoyingly addictive Love It or Leave It, which describes both the show and John and the theme song. Almost anything Love It is annoyingly addictive. Just kidding. He, of course, is a straight troop loved by all sides. Today's show is with Tom Frank, who is a genuine friend of the pod. Uh, Tom and I have known each other for, I guess it's over 20 years now. He was in Minneapolis to do a reading from his book, Listen Liberal, so I had him actually into the studio, which made the conversation more digressive uh, and a little more animated than usual. And to be frank, a little less awkward. But I promise you we'll make up for that lack of awkwardness in episodes to come. For now, though, here is my conversation with Tom. Tom, Frank, one of my oldest friends, and by that I mean both literally and... Figuratively? Both. (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, like, we go back a long way and you're old. Oh. (laughs) That is harsh. Harsh realm. Yeah. Harsh Uh, realm. Um, just the other day on Twitter, someone was talking. I use that phrase all the time, by the way. <laughs> I, 
I, I do. I don't use the. I don't say wha- the ones that did that didn't wax wax slack. <laughs> swinging on the flippity Hank flop. Swinging on the flippity flop. Um, what is it? Uh, lame harsh stain. Realm, that's, lame, lame stain. I use that all the time. I, lame stain. But uh, but harsh realm. That is that is a genius phrase. It I is. It was actually like it. It turned into like almost real thing. And for people who don't know what we're talking about, who are not old like us, um, <laughs> one of the very first things I remember about you, Tom. Was the great grunge hoax yeah, of yeah, which I had a very small hand in. Uh, it was ninety two. Ninety two. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, I had a very small hand in that. Um, not in not in formulating the hoax or actually perpetrating the hoax, but in the sort of aftermath. <laughs> I wrote about it, and uh, it was that was man, that was some funny stuff. And the New York Times got mad. They got mad. Well, the, the hoax had been played on them, right? And they didn't like. It was like uh, I was the messenger, you know. And they and they sort of classic Shoot the messenger, script. man. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's why you exactly. can't get your ideas in the New York Times, and because like they're still well, pissed about the. No, we're great not going to talk about that. Oh yeah, no. Because frankly, Anna, I can't get my ideas in anything anymore. But that's coming to an end, I hope. But uh, for like the last couple of years, I've only written for uh, foreign publications. So, yeah. Well, that's unfortunate because we should talk about your ideas. So you are the author such of such as they are, such as they are. You are the author of Listen Liberal most recently. Yeah. Um, of a bunch of books um, before that. The one of the organizing theses of American political conversation. What's the matter with Kansas? Yeah. Um, you know what? I actually kind of want to ask you. Like that idea. Like took hold with such force. Well, it's still you say that idea, people... but it's 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 the first page of the book is what took hold. People don't yeah. don't don't read the. Well, I don't want to. I, I shouldn't. I don't want to be mean every, about everyone it. Everyone who says that, no, there's no way that everyone who talks about what's the matter with Kansas read the book, or else you would be fabulously right. wealthy, and <laughs> well, you would you, probably <laughs> like be in the New York Times on a regular basis. But I don't know about that because the book has. Um, you know, it starts out. What's the matter? Kansas starts out on the very first page, saying, "Look at this weird thing uh, that uh, working class people voting for Republicans isn't this weird." And by the end of the book, you're like, "Yeah, this is happening, and nothing strange about it." Well, I mean, it's strange. It's in, in a historical sense, this is a huge reversal and an inversion, and all that all that stuff. But by the end of the book, I have done my best to explain why, uh, and people often um, remember the question. You know, look at how weird this is. What's going on here? And don't remember the answer. I don't know. I actually think that <clears throat> the answer maybe to a slightly more rarefied group of people, like wonkier, nerdier political science types, the answer to the question, which is that, uh, you know, uh, working class people in the Midwest and elsewhere vote for conservatives against their economic interests because they've been pandered to via social issues. Yeah. That's like the culture wars. And that's, uh, the cult- the, that's, but, that's sort of the second the, level. The, the thing is that it's that, that class gets, you know, um, articulated in all of these weird ways that are not economic and mm-hmm. uh, culture wars is, is so the, 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 the insight was that the culture wars are every single one of them is in some way, a concealed way of talking about class, uh, which is, you know, really weird, but is true. And in, in fact, that sort of brings us right up to the current moment. Yeah. Because in a lot of ways, like, Listen Liberal is like a sequel. Yes, it is. It begins with the, the, the with the last chapter 
Uh, what's the matter with Kent? The part that nobody reads about Bill Clinton. <laughs> I sort of blame the Democrats for their own, uh, you know, for their own defeat. And then I just pick right up with that mm-hmm. <laughs> here, uh, 12 years later. And, sort of uh, like if, if What's the Matter Kansas is about the way that the right has um, used culture war language and tropes to, I don't want to use the word manipulate um, white working class voters because that oh, sounds... I think, I think there is a lot of manipulation, though. I, I mean, th- th- because this is not this is not earnest. It's not heartfelt. A lot of it is, I mean, uh, you know, there you know, there's a lot of uh, of PR people and and uh, you know, yes, manipulation. Uh, well, I wanted I wanted to give them a little bit of agency, but yeah. oh, okay, no, that's, the, know, wait, that like, is true too. I mean, they're uh, making these choices on mi- their own. Yes, like they're not people... like being brainwashed. That's that's the thing. Is like yes. I think some people okay do... there, but there is there is that uh, that you know that there's that, a lot of salesmanship the loud, the going on. Speaker going on every after yes, there's a there's <laughs> salesmanship happening, <laughs> yeah. and it's uh, but they're making the choice to buy right. So if what's the matter with Kansas is about how the right uses culture war language tropes etc to manipulate or sell you know uh, against their self-interest ideas to yes. white working class then listen liberal is about how the democrats have been like okay do that yeah walk away <laughs> like yeah. has been like wow, has we been... can't figure out how that's happening hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's been about the democrats like um basically saying giving up for not just shrugging their shoulders and walking away but making a conscious choice yeah to which and that's important too when you talk about agency that this was a conscious choice over the decades and that's i think that's one of the startling things about listen liberal is how open the democrats have been about making the choice to walk away from working class issues and they 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 they, i was going to say they talk a good game at election year but they didn't this time (laughs) they didn't really even try and uh you know but they have uh more or less openly just said the hell with this and do you want to lay out your thesis even a little bit a little bit more? Because I, I want to talk about it and I want to talk about whether or not it – I mean there's a lot of uh, reason to think that your thesis in, in Listen Liberal kind of explains Donald Trump, right? Yeah. Well, although I wrote it without knowing that he was going to be the Republican nominee <laughs> well, or what he would do. I, I right. mean that was – I wrote it well in advance. But yeah, it, it's kind of uncanny. Um, that the the whole you know one of the many ways of the of interpreting the argument is that by becoming the party of affluent white collar professionals, the kind of people we used to live among in Washington D.C., um, they have opened themselves. They're wide open for a populist you know for the populist attack, and it gets worse every four years. Uh, and the you know here it comes with Trump. I of course didn't see that coming. <laughs> But here it here it comes and boom, look what happened. Now, even with having written the book, like that's actually interesting to me. Like even having written the book and talked about the ways in which uh liberals and democrats have walked away from the working class, like you still thought like you still I still didn't... thought that Hillary would win. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's because I I thought that because um I thought Hillary was a weak candidate. But I thought Trump was a you know a, you know a, a train wreck candidate. I mean, all the different scandals and blunders. And look, at the bottom line is, I believe the polls. I always do. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is you know I like I am a member of the class that I criticize. I am I am a guy who reads the newspapers and believes what he reads. You know, <laughs> and uh, I look at five thirty eight dot com and I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. That said, Anna, you know, one of the one of the most amazing or interesting or crazy things that happened to me in this last go-round was a, about a week and a half before the election, the Guardian called me up and said, we want 
you to write the uh, Trump wins story. And I said, but Trump's not going to win. And they said, well, he has a good chance. And I said, okay. And I went out and um, and I read, you know, and I, I dug in, dug down in the polls. This is a week before the election. And I watched a whole lot of Trump rallies on YouTube. And I persuaded myself that they were right, that he did have a very good chance. And in fact, in order to write the story, I had to persuade myself that he was going to win. And I wrote that story. And that story appeared 10 minutes after the AP called the election for Trump. And it's it's one of the meanest I shouldn't say meanest. It's one of the best articles I've ever written. I mean, I was so angry. I mean, so imagine this is a week before the election, and I had to put myself in the mood that the rest of the country was in the day after the election. And I, I succeeded in doing this and, and wrote – and I'm still very proud of this article. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And then I had to somehow detoxify myself with, you know, with washing myself with bourbon, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You've always been a really fast writer, but I have to say, like, I was I was even thought that was like rather extraordinary. Oh, you you saw it. Yeah. When it got it. Well, of course, I wrote it in advance. (laughs) I didn't write write it like, you know, on election night. No, I wrote it well in advance. Yeah. I mean, it was it was very it was highly polished. It had links to everything. You remember it was it was a a well-crafted essay. I I mean, I did suspect perhaps (laughs) that you had done some of it in advance, but you are. Yeah. Also a very fast writer. I was actually thinking I don't want to. No one's that fast. I don't want to do too much like reminiscing because that would be boring for probably everyone but us. But when I went to see you speak last night, something about you that has changed. Um, you used to throw your papers on the floor when you got done. <laughs> yeah, I used to be very bitter <laughs> and to, angry. I also like, my glasses have changed. Have you noticed yeah, that? You, your glasses I lost have... my my those those little round glasses yeah. that I always wore. They're like yeah. World War Two Army issue yeah. glasses. You don't dress like a 1930s <laughs> businessman anymore either. Well. Like, <laughs> okay, true that, but uh, the the uh, I I left the glasses in uh, like the Dallas Fort Worth airport the other day. I was on a flight back from Perth, Australia, and they routed me. Oh my god, you got to understand, I was on planes for forty eight hours, and somewhere along the line, I lost my signature glasses, and I had That's to get right. I had to go to one of those uh you know get your glasses in an hour place. <laughs> what I have now. Yeah, you, I look I, like Woody Allen in the 70s. So you still wore those. That's amazing. Like, I actually assumed yeah, that the, the current glasses were like... No, this is a terrible... I mean, they don't they don't make those anymore, you know? <laughs> the, the the World War II... But you, so you used to dress like a 1930s businessman, like, basically in costume. Yeah. Um, I think you, you like, all your clothes were thrifted, right? That's still, that's still the case, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And then um, I think from doing a policy debate in high school, you had this, like, tick... Of like when you would read, you would finish the papers on the floor. <laughs> you would finish okay, reading so a page. You would like throw the paper on that, the floor. It, it, that I was, um, I was much more aggressive and uh, angry. And you might have noticed something else about my speaking style now, which is I am, um, I'm a much nicer person. Yes, I am. <laughs> I guess time mellows us all. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, and I take my time. And another problem with that, with throwing the pages on the floor, they get dirty. And, uh, you know, people step on them and they pick up dirt. And then and, and I'm on a book tour. This is like the book tour to end all book tours. It's going on and on and on. Oh, you're taking a phone call while we're on no, the air? I was, what, what is, what is, well, there's one thing that we're not on the air, but that'll probably go into the tape. Um, and also that was like it was important. But I, and I didn't take it. So okay, there. so I have to give the same talk again and again and again, so I can't throw the papers on the floor anymore. Yeah, you're a professional. Well. Yeah, you're a member <laughs> of the professional class. That was my favorite question to you last night, and I want to get into that in a little bit, which is like, yeah. how can you can how do you demonize and critique a class that you are? And I'm a member of. 
very fully a member of. Yeah. Well, very fully. No, I'm I'm a like second what what would you call it? Like second tier or third tier member of. I mean, I have the the degrees, mm-hmm. right? I have the formal uh, uh, par- elements of it, but uh, I'm not, you know, one of these. Uh, uh, you lived in Washington. Mm-hmm. These people on top, you know, the winners. <laughs> that, that's what I'm. I'm not that. Yeah, I'm not a winner either. Neither of us are winners. Like we would have different lives if we were. We're, we're, we're we wouldn't be recording that, a that... podcast in a closet if we were winners. <laughs> So let's get back to your themes because I want to talk a little bit more about the professional. I also used to oh. drink 40 ounces. That's right. And, and, as I spoke back in the day, I don't do that anymore there was, either. There was a lot There's of, been a lot of reforms. Well, I was going to say there was a lot of performative aspects to your persona yeah. back in the day. Yeah. No, I still do I still do some some performative stuff, but the, that cuts – the 40 ounces cut into the performance. They, they actually <laughs> – yeah, they detract some time from your ability to continue yes. the performance. Well, you can't go on for two and a half hours with it if you're like swigging at a you know Colt forty five or whatever that is. You yeah. know, um. <laughs> and it was always the the most wretched brands. I would always choose the, the lowest end. Yep. Yes, these are all things that I remember. Um, uh, <laughs> you also served me my first martini. Did I? Did I? But that was back before that was cool. Do you remember mm-hmm. when the martini craze happened when it started? And I was like, damn. Now I can't do that anymore. <laughs> yep. Like there was this like very, again, like you had this, you and your pals in the Pluto Schloss. Yes. You remember that house on 48th Street in Chicago. Yep. And I went back there recently and it was, it was a, it was a, it belonged to a professor. He was a great guy and he rented out half of the house to us, to me and my friends. And we had a lot of fun there. And it was you, what you might expect, like four college kids and grad students living at a house to look like. It was, it was, it was a wreck. Yes. It was and a wreck. It was a wreck, but it was it was from the 1880s, and it had several wonderful features. One of them, it had a full-length bathtub. I don't think I've ever seen that before or since. You could, like, lie down all the way <laughs> in this bathtub. Anyhow, but th- this house, I went back there recently. That house is this, this setting for a lot of fond memories. You know, we mm-hmm. did the Baffler magazine there. We had a lot of fun in that house. And uh, I went back there recently, and it belongs to a real honest-to-God uh billionaire i believe i mean it was in this it was a beautiful it had been a mansion in the 1880s had fallen into this sort of state of disrepair to the point where you could afford it right exactly to the point where someone like me could live in it and now it has been sort of recalled back into the realm of wealth and it's surrounded by a security perimeter offense you know and the those uh conifers that grow really fast what do you call them and so you can't see it anymore conifers that grow really fast <laughs> yeah, yeah you yeah. can't see it anymore anyhow well, that isn't a metaphor for for lost youth I, and well but, that's hyde park also that's that neighborhood yeah. in chicago the whole place is like that now i took my my daughter there with me i guess we can say this is on a podcast i never like to talk about my family on these things but you know my family so and um she was born there and uh, but we moved away when she not was two. Not in the house, not in the house, in but in Hyde Park, Park in that right. neighborhood. And yeah. she, we we moved away when she was two, so her memories of it are very you know very dim. But we were walking around, and it's like I said, used to be this kind of student quarter, kind mm-hmm. of rundown, kind of bedraggled, and now is very spiffy. It's beyond spiffy. It's it's really nice. Yeah. And we're walking around this neighborhood, and she says to me, "Daddy, why did we ever leave this place?" <laughs> She has good taste. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, refined taste, probably from living in D.C., huh? Yes. You know, and that's that's exactly it. And we live we live in what I consider to be a pretty nice place now, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Um, so I've been talking to Tom Frank, who is uh, an actual genuine friend of mine, uh, here on With Friends Like These. 
We're going to take a short break and be right back, and maybe we'll actually stick to a talk about Talk about a, a book? Just, yeah, we could talk about a book. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. In fact, I cannot think of a single thing that you can't get on demand. There isn't an app for, except perhaps, of course, like genuine emotion and love. But you can get my podcast on demand and you can get stamps on demand, which maybe you could use to write someone to generate some of that not quite on demand emotion and relationships. But why are you going to the post office? Unless, of course, that's where you might meet someone who then you would later mail a letter to using postage that you got from stamps.com. And anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with stamps.com, except, of course, meet someone, but you're going to meet them and then come back home and use stamp.com. And you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. It is actually really convenient. And, and you know, if you're not in, you know, the market for meeting someone while standing in line, which maybe isn't even the best way, I don't know, to meet somebody. But stamps.com is great. The post office, probably not the best place to meet people anyway. And, you know, you want to be able to do things on demand, that you can get postage for stamps, letters, postcards. If you say want to mail your representative or the president, any one of the presidents we currently have, Jared, uh, Mike Pence, or the one who, uh, you know, uh, appears at the podium with president at the title, you can use stamps.com. And if you use my code, friends, you get a special offer four-week trial, and that includes postage and a digital scale. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and use the promo code FRIENDS. That's stamps.com. Enter FRIENDS. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I was actually thinking about making you do my ad reads with me. Oh, no. I know. Come on, you can't do that. Because... (laughs) I get paid for doing that. (laughs) Well, I would get paid. I'd just be like dragging you in to like <laughs> to humiliate me. Yeah, and also because no I, way you got to do that yourself, the, lady. You got to carry that burden yourself. Because the punk rock version of you and I would not have done this <laughs> at all. Of course not. Every time well, I, I still don't do ads. Come on. <laughs> and every time I do these ads, which of course my sponsors are fantastic, and everyone should should buy from them and use the promo code from this show to do those things. Oh God. Um, I always want to add, but you know, property is theft. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it from Anna. Also, nothing in ca- nothing about capitalism will fill your soul. Yeah, so, that's right. You know, that's right. Um, so, wait, like, not even Pepsi's new Soul Fill. Yeah. <laughs> Just one swig of that, and you were like humming on your way. You know, God, you and down I, the highway to soulfulness. You and I spent years and years railing against like shit commodification, commodification of dissent. Yeah. Um, and the, and the, yes. And, uh, you know, now, it's funny because it feels both like a long time ago and something that's not that important. It was so important to us at the time. So important to us at the time. But it just feels like there's so many bigger problems now. Right. I remember getting into screaming fights about, you know, Matador selling out half of its. Yeah. How much did they sell? It was like I don't know. That, wasn't, like that wasn't with me. That was, but that, I, know, I know the kind of argument you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, we had like Matador started to sold at 49% of its stake or like some small percentage of its stake to like Capital Records and yeah. like having like, yeah. like not. Scre- this is, you got to put this in context. Yeah. This is in the early 90s. We thought things like that music were so incredibly important and we thought it was important to, to, to that it not be commercial. 
and uh, you know, on and on and on. And now we're in the age of Spotify. It's like the neutron bomb has has been dropped on all all our musician friends. Yeah, although they also I mean it's just a different economy. It's just but, a but, completely so different it, economy. I know, and I and look, I re- I remember when those arguments were happening, and that was sort of when I started to give up on that particular line of argument and become more political, more mm-hmm. like partisan political. And I remember it was a lot of the, the deeds of the Clinton administration that really did it for me, um, that made me so mad. Uh, you know, the, I remember the day that welfare reform happened and I was in Hyde Park and I was so angry at Bill Clinton and I swore to never vote for another Clinton. I broke my vow this year, by the way, last oh, wow. year. I voted for Hillary. Did you have a suspicion that Hillary would be running or were you thinking about Chelsea? Like what was the no, never just, vote for I, I another just, Clinton? Uh, how, how, how did you have the insight oh, you know to go I, broadly? Of course, with, what, what I, I remember that was like those, those, that part of the, the party, okay. that faction, you know. All right. Um, I just they they made me so angry that bank deregulation and telecom deregulation, which was a huge deal to me at the time, and now it seems like a you know a minor a minor disaster compared to all the other things, the things that went later. Yeah, I'm trying to think about like those arguments that we had, and I you know just remember them. I having this sudden vision of like the 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 tower where HPK was. Yeah, and. Like, this is a college radio station we worked at. Yeah, and and getting into these arguments with people about oh my god, and ferocious, vicious, mean arguments. People would like you would lose friends. On you would lose on. friends yes. over like I think that they shouldn't have recorded that record now, for I, a major I, label. I, and, I, yeah, yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah, and I was of course one of those people who we all felt that to a certain degree, but yep. it, it just like all of these things it got taken too far. It's funny that was our you read about like uh, yeah, for the record versus, I was on the side of like if they need to make money I hope I wish them well yeah. and what I was against oh my was, god yes well of course my what I was against was the exploitation stuff yeah which is what Steve Albini wrote about in yeah yeah but it's funny because that was our, what's the matter with music yeah and now what's the matter with music is so much more yeah. But anyway, so we ha- we'd have these fights, and this, I'm trying to remember what my transition was because people ask me all the time about. Um, you remember I was I mean I wrote about politics, but also mainly wrote about culture. Yeah, well, we all did. Yeah, that was so important. It is hard to imagine now how important music was to us. By the way, and I drive around. I'm on this Midwestern mm-hmm. book tour, going to many, many, many cities, and I, as I drive around in the car. You know, I'm listening to, of course, music from that era because I've never really advanced beyond that. In yeah. fact, I'm advancing the other direction. If there's anything new I'm listening to, it's like jazz from when the When you advance the in the other direction, that's called regression. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's new for me, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Oh, I always say it's always like 1992 in my car. Like, I mean, yes. that's, that was like a that's pe- about right. That's, that's about right. That was a fantastic year for music. And like it was like I can tell you all the albums from that year that I love and still. Oh, listen I, to. I know, no, that was, uh, but that was Betty Severe, um, Liz yes, Fair, like yes. those the pavement EPs from that yes, year. Those are great, and I still listen to those on vinyl. But uh, but now I have Spotify, which is doing such <laughs> incredible damage to the livelihood of musicians. Yeah. But it's wonderful in certain respects. So, for example, all the Stooges bootlegs are on Spotify. So I listen to these as I drive around. Iggy Pop from like the seventies. What the hell is it doing on here? Well, it's there. And here's another really interesting thing. So I liked jazz when we were in college mm-hmm. radio, but you couldn't just listen to Coltrane if you wanted. The records were very rare. Yeah. And you couldn't just go out and get them. There's a scarcity aspect to it. Yes, but Rick Perlstein used to argue jazz was the real punk. Yeah. And now our, colleague, that, our, our classmate, Rick Perlstein, yeah, all now. Yeah. So also, By the way, has he been on this podcast? He is not. He has not been. But, but I, he will I, be. He, yes, he will it, be. It, it, Author listen, of the scarcity, Nixon Land and what's the other big uh, book? The book about Goldwater. What was that called? Before the Storm? Yes. After the storm. Excellent book. Excellent One of those two. Before the Storm. Before the Storm, yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, uh, the scarcity aspect has been completely, it's gone. 
So I used there's this book that I had back when we were in in college radio. It was a by Gunther Schuller, and it was a history of swing music, and I mean it was detailed. And he like transcribes uh, like saxophone solos on the page so that you can you can look at it, you know, and you can try to understand how awesome you know the solo is. But frankly. You know, you read this book and it doesn't mean anything because you can't listen to the records. They're incredibly rare. Well, here's the thing. They aren't anymore. So I'm now rereading this book and he he writes about a such and such, you know, you know, Joe Blow playing a solo on this, you know, session in 1928. And you're like, you go to Spotify and ding, 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 ding. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> you can just listen to it now. It blows my mind. And I don't want to get to, I really do want to talk about politics. But oh, actually, yeah, that's right. We're here to talk about politics. <laughs> but also, it's entirely changed electronic music and music yeah. mixing as well. My husband, who my current husband, who you need to meet, is a electronic music dude. And, like, there's crate digging still, but a lot of that crate digging happens online. Yeah. It's, like, all that, all, it's completely changed right? who can do electronic music. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, but let's talk about like so, so a couple of things. One thing is, is I'm interested in how you you talked a little bit how you sort of transitioned from these very passionate arguments about culture into arguments about politics. Um, the conquest of cool. Yeah. Remember about advertising in the '60s. Yes, we were in the same reading group with the, Dr. Neil Harris. That's right. And then the next book of mine was called One Market Under God, and it was I was bringing that thesis up to date, up to date in mm-hmm. 1999. So it was about the dot com bubble. And the sort of emerging, you know, new economy. And uh, I don't know if, if you remember, but I, I read every management theory book I could get my hands on at the thrift store. <laughs> and I, I had this stack of them like six feet high in my in my how house. You're not a business titan now. Like, how well, come you're not? And like... then, but that that trend, that went stra- that led me straight into what's the matter with Kansas? It was it was it was. You know, really, really interesting how that how that went. But I went from that was a book about management theory, and it led weirdly to this other question, which is what the hell happened to the working class? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got these business people dreaming of world conquest in the '90s. You know, that sort of insane business culture climate of the of the time, and I was criticizing that. You know, that was my that was my subject. And then then, the, the, you know, they're stealing all this imagery from unions and from the 30s and presenting themselves. Remember, I used the I coined the phrase market populism, mm-hmm. that that's what they were doing. And so then then I'm, I'm like, well, where's the real where's the real deal? Where's the real populists? And, uh, you know, where's my homies from Kansas? And uh, lo and behold, at that very moment, they were engaged in this fight over the theory of evolution. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what's happened to them. And you always talk about you're from Kansas. And I don't know if you talk about this as as much as you used to, but you were a young conservative in that's Kansas. A, that right? is very true, yes. And uh, I got over it pretty quickly once, <laughs> <laughs> once I went to college, but I was. I was very conservative. But that was largely because I um, – I didn't understand the world, and I saw the world in theoretical terms when I was young. I mean, I still do to a certain degree, but I now admit, acknowledge fact, you know, unlike our president. But I acknowledge fact. And um, uh, at the time, I wanted to see the world as uh, will and idea, you know, and I – free market theory, among other things, is a very comforting and uh, uh, persuasive theory. If you look at it just as a theory, it's moral. Uh, it has a beginning and an end. Everything has its place. It can explain everything. It is a really um, um, persuasive system as long as you don't take reality into account. Right. In some ways, it's actually like the grandest of all conspiracy theories. 
right? Like because it, it implies like there is an organization in the world. That yeah. Not like but, but but not like a singular wait, wait, organization. A spontaneous but, organization right. like nature. It's organic. Right. And it makes sense. And <clears throat> life makes sense. And everything unfolds according to its you know proper meaning and all. And this was very convincing to me when I was a, a kid in high school. And so you went to college. What happened in college that like <laughs> <laughs> reality. <laughs> well, no. Re- that doesn't I mean, mean I'm just reality, saying, you know. No, no it, a bunch of different things. Um, one of them was summer jobs that I did mm-hmm. where I was a typist and uh, uh, and I was very poorly paid and it made me mad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, and another was reading uh, reading books and realizing how broad human experience was and how, you know, there were, you know, thousands of things undreamt of in their in the free market philosophy that couldn't be explained, didn't fit, didn't have any uh, any place. You want to hear an anecdote? I, I'm always up for a good so anecdote. I was I went to the University of Kansas for one year. And I transferred out of there, but I one of the uh, one of the things that I remember very vividly there is walking around in um, the library, this wonderful OpenStax library. And I came across a whole shelf of books all with the same title, and the title was The Populist Revolt. And this is a famous book in the 30s, um, uh, a history of the populist movement in the 1890s, published in the 30s, and obviously had once been a textbook at the University of Kansas and wasn't anymore. And uh, I'd never heard of this before, and I pulled it down and started reading it, and lo and behold, it was about Kansas. And he's like, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. And it's this kind of... um, the allure of a secret history, but also finding the code. Populism is the sort of code for understanding Kansas. Now, there's no monuments to the populist movement in Kansas, and I had never Except heard of it. Except for the, the man who built the uh, sculpture yes, garden. Yes, the sculpture garden. I hope we'll, we'll get to that at some okay. point. But that was somebody built that on their own. You know, right. There's no public monument. There is a populist – there's a, a monument to populism that is a privately – created sculpture garden that we, we yeah, may well, talk about. We may not yeah, get to yeah, who but knows. But it's out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and it's really interesting. It's uh, anyhow. But there's no but, public monuments to populism right. in Kansas. Right, and you, they don't teach it in high school. You don't – by the way, and when there's I was – a lot in, they don't teach in Kansas high schools, actually. But, uh, yeah, but when I was in <laughs> elementary school, the Kansas schools were pretty good back then, and that Kansas was very proud of its schools, and they did teach you Kansas history. This is very important to them. We are not those people from Missouri. You know, we're we're from we're John Brown's people. You know, we are not those uh, those uh, slaveholders from Missouri are coming over and burning down Lawrence, Kansas. This, all that was very important to them, but populism was not. It's ne- it was never even mentioned. Okay, so I discovered this, and I felt like I had discovered this uh, secret history, and um, and and I still think that that's true to some degree because the populist style. Still is, I mean, and the, and the mindset and the anti-elitism and the uh, hatred of banks and the East Coast and, uh, you know, uh, uh, people on top, hierarchy, that is still deep in the grain in Kansas and in Minnesota mm-hmm. and in Iowa, where I'm going later today, and in all of these plain states and in a lot of the southern states as well. It's, it's very much in the air they breathe. Uh, the, the problem the, or the interesting thing is that the radical side to it has disappeared. Now, you still have some of that here in Minnesota or in a place like Democrat North, Farm Labor Party. Yeah. Or in North, North Dakota, you see you see elements of that or in Wisconsin. But by and large, that has it is the, the whole populist style has gone over to the right in a really interesting way. Yeah. The idea that populism would mean that the people own things. Yeah, is, what? Is, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that angle, huh? It's like the part that's really—it's the part that's really missing from Trump's populism, right? Yeah, is like yeah. what was what was actually kind of a key or that the people, area. The people have some right to 
mm, regulate business enterprise, you know, which just to the, in the 19th century seemed like, yeah, duh, you know, yeah. that's like a no brainer. And today is like, what? You know, it's like so foreign to people. And that the accurate measure of things was also an important government duty. Yeah. I, I read like an, an anecdote yes. about Francis Perkins recently, who I wanted to mention last night when you were talking about the uh, the brain trust. Yeah, Roosevelt's, Roosevelt's brain team trust. of outsiders. Team of outsiders. That she was a she was a social worker and labor organizer. Yes. Prior to being yes, labor yes. secretary, she imagine on my list. Yeah. imagine someone, even a Democrat, um, appointing a labor organizer right. to happens. the cabinet. Right. But what if we like, would have had you be talking about? Uh, You'd be talking about a very different last eight years. Right. Had Obama followed that sort of the, the sort of Roosevelt uh, uh, path with regards to appointments. But I, the anecdote about her, I believe, I don't want to mess it. I don't. I don't remember it that clearly. But You're going to mess it up. I'm going to mess it up. But it had to do with her seeing the uh, job statistics quoted by Herbert Hoover and her being like, "I know those aren't right." <laughs> yeah. And so I want to do this other kinds of measures. Yeah. Of job creation. Oh, that's awesome. So she's responsible for that because yeah. all you know, all of the economic measurement goes back to that period, the mm-hmm. New Deal. That's when they started doing um, accurate measurement of the economy. There's And there's basically, if you want to understand what ha- what happened before, then you basically have to m- make up your own metrics, like Thomas Piketty, you know about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he wants to measure the 19th century. It's very hard to do, uh, you know. Yeah, we're keeping great records for one thing. And, yeah. and the other yeah, thing is that yeah. there aren't well, standardized Well, no income measures. taxes. Yeah. Exactly. So there's no way to really know. Um, but so let's talk about the populist moment. Um, I Before, I don't... Which is now running in reverse as fast as its legs will carry it. Yeah, and I mean it's 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 hard to even call it populist. I think, um, but there's an important part of your thesis that I I want to problematize a bit, um, which is that the that that Trump's call to populism worked. Sorry, Trump's call to populism worked. Worked. Yeah. I mean, it, it obviously he's president, so on some level, I guess we have to <laughs> yeah. say that he it worked. But like you know. Yeah. Hillary did win with voters working, yeah. uh, voters making less than $50,000 a year. And then also turnout for voters w- making less than $50,000 a year was lower in 2016 yeah. than it was in 2012. Which is a victory for Trump. Which is a victory for Trump. And so in the, one of the working theses about who stayed home yeah. would be the non-white working class. That's right. No, but that's right. That's part of the appeal or the appeal or, or the design. Okay, right. Is it a lot of white working class voters – and by the way, we generally define – yeah, let's working talk about what working not, class means. It's not yeah. uh, lower class. Right. It's not poor. It tends to be people in the middle class, but who are more – can see their middle class status right. uh, disintegrating. Does it have like an actual definition? Because I'm always, I'm always troubled by using the term because it doesn't have like a real definition. And also because yeah, – People who sell their labor. The, the, uh, but there are, there are sharp distinctions between working class and the professional class. Right. Um, where the professional class, their status is based on educational attainment. Right. Always. So working class uh, j- jobs and people, no, that's not important. They might have gone to school, but that's not essential to uh, who they are and what they do. But for instance, you know, um, if you look at educational attainment versus uh, income for Trump voters, um, it actually the, the predictor is education more than income. Yeah. Uh, because people well, there you go. making more than well, however income is all over the map. So you will have. Uh, so it's like business owners uh, who don't have a college education, yeah. you know, self-employed people who may not have a, a, a well, small, degree. OK, so now you're talking small. Those are the people that went for Trump. Going to be, yeah. Small business is going to be going for Trump in right. a huge way, by the way. And that is also contested terrain, although the Democrats have just so completely dropped the ball. There was no I mean, small business we think of as a pretty right wing group, but. There is no group in America that was angrier about the Wall Street bailouts than small business people because mm-hmm. they, they never get that kind of treatment, you know. And th- this is just absolutely infuriating to them, you know, to watch these banks get – I mean, 
Anyhow, let's go back. Great to, lost opportunity, right? So let's go back to the the, the to argument that Trump won by appealing to populist sentiment and working class sentiment. Yeah, um, he didn't actually win the popular vote. the The popular vote, which is one way to define yeah. populism, um, and then he also didn't actually win people who were making less than fifty thousand dollars a year, and right. the turnout for people making less than fifty thousand well, dollars a year the, was low. Yeah, probably the poor, because the always, people. The poor colored. always go for, or are, are some of the most reliable Democratic voters there are. Right. But it, it, people, when you measure people by income, you're going to get groups like the handicapped, mm-hmm. the elderly. You're going to get. I mean, my mom would probably be in that in that category that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're going to have unemployed people. Right. You're going to have homeless people. Well, they don't generally vote, but you're going to have. And I mean, it's harder. Is, and and all not, those people are also people that are locked out by voter ID laws. Homeless people are, yeah. Well, no, sure. also disabled people, elderly people yeah. without driver's license. Yeah. I mean, no, that, that's right. And that's a uh, yeah, big surprise there. And that is one of the most reliable Democratic groups. And voter ID laws, guess what, are aimed at them. Right. No so question the about it. That- but, but then you also have the people who stayed home. Right. Very interesting. Uh, you know, this, and this does tend to be a lot of working class people didn't vote. Um, and that is, you know, they weren't enthused by Hillary. Right. And that's... Uh, this is a huge part of the problem for the Democratic Party. Just because I feel like one message that people are getting from you is that we need to take some pages from the Trump playbook. Oh, I, I don't and know if I go that far. But uh, I mean, we, maybe from his also, style and everything. But I think yeah. I think the Democrats need to take some pages from their own damn playbook. <laughs> you know, go back, go back and look at how Democrats used to do this. It's just not that hard. Right. The, the funny thing is that the Democrats... I, mean, I just want to be super, super clear because like, this is something that bothers me Like in reading analyses of... 2016 that talk about Democrats not taking advantage of working class yeah. messages, um, which is that you can't leave out race. You cannot leave no, out I, of race. And I know you know but, this, yeah. but it's just because like racial resentment is a bigger sure. racial that's, resentment that's a, that's was a, a bigger predictor for Trump turnout than any other any other metric. Yeah, it is if you measure racial resentment. Yeah, is and, that different from other years? I wonder. You know what? I have been assuming that it is, but um, I don't know. But it is the biggest predictor, not income, not Because one thing I noticed about Hillary, I don't not... know if you, if, you're, if you saw this, she's white. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you mean. Yeah. And, just throwing that yeah, out there. <laughs> yeah. And also the other problem is um, with Hillary is that her message to voters, to people of color even, was – you know, vote for me or else there'll be a racist in the White House. Yeah. Which is not a powerful message to people of color because well, it's, that's it's, not. It's also did Trump, it's, you know, did the groups that Trump was uh, was specifically targeting, which is mainly Muslims and then uh, I would say secondarily Mexicans, the right. two groups that he was most uh, bigoted towards. Right. Uh, so a lot of your traditional Democratic voters. Well, I, I, where am I going? Yeah, with where this? are you going with that? Because I think he was pretty bigoted towards it, like a lot. Well, of a lot. No, of course he goes down the list yeah, of ethnic groups right. and, and he's like it, it insults them or is ham handed towards every single one. It's it's absolutely inexcusable. But the Hillary, why did Hillary's message not work? Hillary's entire. I mean, Hillary's message was a very professional class message. Yes. The anti-discrimination thing was about like uh, executives who want to rise to the top. You know, the glass, the famous glass ceiling thing. This is this means nothing to people who are, you know, actually toiling at it. You know, yeah, work at a job. Right. You know? Well, the point I want to make one is that so I've heard this like Joy Reid is a person that told me 
that for her, Hillary's message of vote for me or there'll be a racist in the White House, how like for black people, that was like, yes, so like we've been having oh, a racist yeah, in the right. White House. They've had that before. Yeah, that we've right. seen that before. And yeah. Like, so yeah, what's, they're not what's, scared yeah. of that. Was that she needed, she could have had that message, but needed to combine it with a economic message for working class people of all colors. Like yeah, that a working class message. And but I that's think, always how Democrats used to do it. The thing is, Hillary didn't want to do that. And she came up with a million excuses for, for not doing that. I mean, crazy, dumb excuses for not doing that. What do you mean by that? Remember, uh, she, to some degree, convinced herself that that would contradict her message about anti-discrimination. Remember what she said about Bernie Sanders? Do you remember this? That if uh, that uh, uh, breaking up Wall Street wouldn't end racism in America. It's like, yeah, that's right. It, it's a separate issue. Well, <laughs> I mean, it has some relationship, right? but it, it's, it's, it's largely a separate issue. But she convinced herself that the two things were somehow at odds, Yeah, which, of course, they never have been in the past. But by the way, this is this is the Democrat. I mean, this is a lot of people in the Democratic Party have persuaded themselves of that, that the, because they, the, the the economic populism is, of course, inconvenient for them personally. Mm. You know, they don't like it personally. Right. It doesn't appeal to them personally. They they have friends who work on Wall Street. They have friends who work in Silicon Valley. Um, you and know. it makes them uncomfortable. Also, yeah. yeah. Whereas like sort of a, uh, a message about love, love Trump's hate. <laughs> <laughs> Love Trump's. I'm sorry. I, every time I hear that, you know what I think. What? By the way, and I have that button at home. <laughs> oh, did remember? you buy it as a souvenir? No, somebody or gave, no, somebody gave like... it to me. But but uh, okay. uh, uh, you know, I collect this stuff. Yeah, I was going to say I don't remember? see you as a person that would like be like. Yeah, you remember, we're, we're in Kansas. It. Do you remember that crazy pastor? I shouldn't say that. That pastor. He's not crazy. He's dead now. The guy from so he's Topeka. Definitely not crazy. The guy anymore. from Topeka who yeah. would say, "God, remember, God hates fags." Yeah, I remember, remember that. this. Yes, every yes. And he had a saying that fascinated me. What was his name? I don't remember. Oh, his name. I just almost said it, but anyhow, yes. he uh, he had a saying that Phelps, fasc- Fred Phelps. Yeah, he had a saying that fascinated me at the time because it was so mean and so weird that our duty is to love God's hate. Ooh. Yeah. We don't understand God's hate. Mm. And it's beyond our ken as human beings. But we know it's God. And so we have to love God. And we know it's hate. That's hate. the part that I really. Isn't that freaky? Yeah, that is freaky. And, but so everyone, every time someone says love Trump's hate, I'm like, do we have to love Trump's hate? <laughs> <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you see it as like a command. No, I keep getting it confused hate. with that with yeah, that yeah, slogan yeah, yeah. from oh, you know, yeah. Because you know what? That actually now you've said it is you're that, never going to be able to get that out of your mind. No, and also that does describe Trump voters like like yes. they love oh, Trump's hate, hate. or do they, they do. disregard Trump's Trump's hate? I've, I've talked to a lot of Trump voters, and a, a lot of them were obviously put off by yeah. Yeah, uh, his remarks, especially I mean, the groping business. That's like in the, in the, here in the Midwest. I mean, there's a lot of like good evangelicals and you know Catholics and Protestants yeah. um, who were t- took did not like that and also who didn't like what he said about um, people of color and necessarily and who definitely were put off by his mocking of the disabled reporter oh, from the New York it, Times. It's loathsome. It was absolutely loathsome. But it's amazing that the guy survived these things. The uh, 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 But the, the, the question is, did they vote for him because of that stuff or in spite of that stuff? Well, and can we ever really know? Yeah, we'll never will. Yeah. So we're going to take another break. I've been talking to Tom Frank, who uh, we managed to stay somewhat on topic for a little while. That's awesome. Um, and we'll see if we can do that uh, again in the next segment. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. 
Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting more sustainable food systems, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Cooking together builds strong family bonds, and it might save your marriage. Uh, Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. Those who spend a lot at restaurants or high-end grocery chains can now spend under $10 a person for a delicious meal. Some of Blue Apron's featured upcoming meals include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salt salata, and sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice. And that is, again, less than $10 per person per meal. Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you will never get bored. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. You got a new tattoo on your arm? All of these are new from when you met me. You knew me. I have tons. I have like seven. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I tell everybody to to wait until you're at least 38 before you start getting tattoos. (laughs) You're never going to regret them. Well, I mean, it's highly Um, unlikely. Like, you'll really be – you'll know what you want. So Okay. I'm actually thinking about getting a nevertheless she persisted tattoo. Um, oh, really? Yeah, but it, it does feel weird to get um, Mitch McConnell's words on your body forever. <laughs> like that's the part I can't get Mitch out of my McConnell. head is that I will have Mitch McConnell's words on my. By body By the way, forever. I once saw him at uh, Dulles Airport. He was what's his wife's name? Uh, J- Elaine Chow. Elaine Chow. He was dropping off Elaine Chow at Dulles Airport. Well, that was that's a very boring anecdote, <clears throat> Tom. <laughs> I know it's not not very good. I mean, <laughs> as DC anecdotes go, that's that's really kind of lame. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you probably got better ones. No, I've, uh, I could, yeah, I dozens. Fill, yeah. A, fill a whole podcast. Yeah. Um, Sorry, mine are really really lame like that. Like, I saw it. There was some <laughs> member of Congress on the airplane I was on the other day. <laughs> And nothing happened at all. I just saw him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was just, he just was on my plane. Yeah. I actually want to talk to you about Jared and Ivanka. Well, I don't know these people. These are people you I don't they know. They haven't been on your plane? No. no. Um, I want to talk to them because I was thinking of you and your thesis about the professional class um, when I uh, have been reading sort of we have not yet gotten to the end of stories about how Jared and Ivanka, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump might be moderating influences on Trump, right? Like people still seem to think that that is a thing you can write with some kind of uh, possibility for it to be true. Isn't that funny? It's all just speculation. We have no idea. No, we have no idea. And all of, in fact, what evidence we do have suggests that they are not moderating influences <laughs> at all. <laughs> but I, I get impulse. Not to, like that guy Bannon. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, my imp- the impulse I think the impulse to think that they might be is actually based on class solidarity. You think so? Because because they are you know they're they're gr- well groomed and they... uh, people love Ivanka. Yeah, uh, I mean I know I know lots of people who admire her. Uh, you know, and she's very tasteful and uh, and, and that's about it, right? Although, well, taste is very like, important in right. this in this conversation, which is one of the reasons that people. Um, People like the the class that I'm describing, the you know liberal class, liberal professional class, yeah, uh, or professional liberal class. One of the things that they that you always hear about Trump is how, is how tasteless mm-hmm. he is, and you know that's that's technically right. 
Uh, in, in so far as as there is any kind of technicalities about taste, his taste is bad. That's that is quite true. But but I, I don't think that's uh, that really. But the, and then uh, by contrast, Ivanka's taste is is quote unquote good. Mm-hmm. Well, it has know? all the class and race signifiers um, that the professional liberal class has, right? Like she's reserved and yeah. she's like polished. Yeah. And but we and I, understated and, and you know. Uh, and Jared did go to Harvard and, you know, right. all that sort of also thing. Also reserved, polished, understated. Yeah. But those are the – And Trump with his garish – by the way, I, one of my my thrift store trends these days is buying Donald J. Trump's signature collection <laughs> shirts and ties at the thrift. And, and they are garish and, and, uh, and, and, you know – What are you doing with them? They sit in my closet. <laughs> Well, do you think I should build a bonfire from them? <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, I don't think there is a good use for them. Like, send them back I to really China. I really don't know what to I do. I don't know. Yeah, or wherever it is they're made, you know. Like, yeah. I don't know. I donate them somewhere. The, uh, like, but the, the ties, you probably don't know this. The ties have a – they have metal in them. They have a little gold, fake gold, you know, brass or whatever, mm-hmm. clasp on the back built into the tie. You probably didn't know that. I didn't know that. Because that's so although... tasteful. And they have, no, it's, it's, it's his name. That's what it is. It's his name on a little fake gold plate. Uh, on the, sewn into the back of the tie. I was actually wondering if it was a classic. His name, not yours. Right. <laughs> I was wondering if that explained like his why he would scotch tape the back of his ties. Oh, uh, so Trump wears his ties way too long. Have you ever right. noticed that? Yes. He ties well, it way. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. if you do that, the, uh, the 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 short end of it, the skinny end of the tie is not going to make it all the way to the loop, you know, where <laughs> yeah. it's supposed to go. So you'd have to scotch tape it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's why that happens. Yeah, but you, you, the, the larger question is, why the hell does he do that? Why doesn't yeah. he tie it like everyone else? Which just brings us back to Jared and Ivanka, which is that... The people who do tie their ties correctly. They tie their ties correctly, and so yeah. therefore they must have the right opinions about race and, uh, what, um, you yeah. know... They must be a moderating influence, yeah, like you said. Be. Yeah, um, And the other thing that people Isn't say... Isn't it funny that you can make those judgments based on taste alone? Or something like taste. Well, obviously, the, with you, Trump, you we have, can't. We have more information, but uh, right, we have more. Well, we have information about all of them, which is yeah. to say, we know what Trump's actual policies are, and we don't need to use his vulgarity as a way to discount him. Which is, I think, a huge. It was a mistake, I think, that um, the media and Democrats made um, in the race to, to to the perpetually offended. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it, it's it's like a. Uh, I mean, what what is the stereotype of the uh, you know the the the, the massively over offended someone always taking offense all the time social justice warriors no 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 no, no, no. i mean no it's it's a stereotype deep in the culture this is Mm -hmm. not something recent i'm thinking pharisees (laughs) you know this is uh you know that's what it reminded me of but but you're right that that is like the singularly most useless topic to be this sort of uh uh, a scolding school marm you Mm -hmm. know uh like that's how you're going to beat him Right. I mean, and that and Hillary, that was a big part of her effort. Remember those TV commercials that she was running, like basically nonstop, were all about how vulgar he was. By the way, can, one of them, uh, if you look into it, the one where they they show Trump Trump using the F word, can we use mm-hmm. it? Where Trump yeah, says, yeah. "And they should fuck themselves," and 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 that's bleeped out, of course, in the Hillary commercial. But you know who he's talking about? Banks. Companies, no companies no. That, sh- that 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 send manufacturing overseas. Oh. Yeah. And you know what? He's right. I hate those people. <laughs> they should go fuck themselves. Yeah, they can go fuck themselves. Yeah, but to They can. Yes. But <laughs> you know, and now maybe this is But here's Hillary pretending to like taking offense, taking offense, taking offense, taking offense. That culture of offense taking is very limited in its appeal. Mm-hmm. Let me put it that way. That's not how you beat a guy like Trump, we now know. 
Yeah, especially because for people for work for for people who work for a living, like making yeah. appeals on taste grounds it, is in itself like kind of offensive. Yep. Like I mean, even if you they don't it, share exactly right. even if they don't share Trump's exact, you know, yeah. values but or taste. We're getting back to the essential thing which is that liberalism is a uh is a class thing nowadays. It's a, it's a it's specifically a a, a a thing of winners of these affluent white collar professionals, and uh, we keep coming we keep circling around this, and it's time we address this thing directly because that that is what it has become. That it has all these other and you mean that culturally, on. not in the podcast because we've been talking about it in the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in, yes, as a culture, right? Okay. But uh, uh, <laughs> I thought you were. There yeah. there are lots there are. Obviously, millions of other people who are part who vote for Demo- the Democratic mm-hmm. Party and 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 all the rest of it, but they come second. The professionals come first always. And right. so they they're the ones that make the commercials. They're the ones that decide on the policies. They're the ones that you know bail out the Wall Street banks. And, and they're the, the ones that, that convince us that that's the only possible way to go forward. Is that you, you you had no choice, you know. Right. And, and I and I want to make sure it, that people- it's a, it is a class party and it's a class. Ideology, and that once you understand that, everything else about about modern liberalism, all its failures, all of its the thing, what, like what you've just been describing, all of this suddenly makes sense. It snaps into focus, is right. what I find. And also, I mean, I I really don't want to leave like race out of this part of the discussion because I think it also that focus on the professional class also leaves out activists of color too, right? I mean, because that was like a, something that people like I think good liberals are offended by things like Black Lives Matter. Um, they wish that people would not make so much offended by black offended, lives matter? but I think they're offended by like harsh tactics. Oh, okay. You know? So I was like, I, by the way. By, uh, so do you remember I got arrested when we were at Chicago? Yes, I do remember that. And that was sort of another turning point for me. And I have been. I'm very sympathetic to Black Lives Matter. I, you know, I'm. I, I haven't gone to any yeah. protests, but but damn, I wish I had because uh, police brutality is something I absolutely despise. Well. That yes, I mean, I yeah. think that people can say that, but I think that I'm just thinking about like you know Hillary being interrupted by protesters. Oh, like oh, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about like the tactics that have to that sometimes people use. Yeah, that well, people make tactical mistakes all the time. Yes, right. that is true. That is true. Right, um, and I think that I think that this um, refusing to appeal to true working class like leaves out. Everyone, not just like white working class. No, no, no. It leaves out. Of pe- course, but but, the, but but Hillary had a problem with the black working class too. You yes. mentioned it earlier. They yeah. didn't show up. Right. They didn't vote. Right. You know, and this is this is that's just as damaging as well, almost as damaging as if they had gone over to the Republican Party. Right. And and you can't blame that on them. They were not inspired. Mm-hmm. There, they were they. You know, there was they felt like there was nothing in this uh, in this in this race for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's not their own fault. <laughs> you know, you can't say, well, you weren't paying close enough attention. No, it's the candidate's responsibility to make that crystal clear. The way you appeal to working class people is with uh, economic issues, workplace issues, you know, issues about the middle class. And these are traditionally when I say traditionally, I now mean 50 years ago. This is what the Democratic Party was really, really good at. And it is so lost. It's so gone. I think of your your own Hubert Humphrey. Here in you know Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah. The blood of the liberals. Quota, you know. <laughs> I know it's so sad. Um, I want to actually come back to a question when I went to your reading the other night. Um, someone asked you, which was that, and and I started off with this, but we didn't we didn't drill down very deeply. Uh, and I want to attempt to do that now, which is. How? What makes you not a member of this class that you're critiquing? And you said in well, the answer, you said I am a right, it, but you said in your answer, I don't like to talk about the personal part of this. So now 
You're going to ask me about that. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, oh, part of it was um, personal mm, uh, frustration. You know, so I got a PhD in history and uh, got out of history school. And um, uh, there were no more tenure track jobs for uh, PhDs were, had, had largely dried up. I mean, there's a few every year, but not very many. And so there was a whole bunch of us getting out of graduate school about this time and not just in history, all the humanities, a lot of the social sciences where we had to go work as uh, adjuncts. And this is, you know, you've read about this. You, hell, you've written about this. This is, this is your subject. Yes, and I the, have. The, the, yes. the kind of... Well, and uh, it's also the reason why I dropped out of grad school. And you did the same thing. So yeah. I didn't draw. I finished. I went ahead and finished. But um, it, this is massively frustrating. And you discover that you, you, you're, you, you work at a wage that's less than the minimum wage. By the way, somebody emailed me something a while ago. It was a... Um, I forget what what it was. It was some kind of boilerplate, but in the boilerplate, they were listing low-wage occupations who would benefit from some program or other. And they were listing things like fast food workers and, you know, this and that. And then one of the occupations that was listed was college instructors. Yeah. <laughs> it's just now we just take it for granted. That is a low-wage occupation. Mm-hmm. And this is – you get a PhD to teach college. It takes decades. You know, I was in school for 25 years. You know, and got that PhD. And then you come out and it's like, I'm a low wage worker now. So that's a shocking thing. And that startles you and that that shakes up your worldview. And then the other thing that happened, of course, is, um, look, even though I don't teach at a university anymore and never, you know, uh, you know, I'm not part of that world. um, I'm still an intellectual. I still think of myself as an intellectual. I read books. I, you know. Uh, I, I write things. Uh, I deal with ideas. You know, mm-hmm. I argue about ideas. Look at what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, once you start examining and we'll do, I mean, we don't have enough time to really talk about how I got interested in professionalism as a subject, but it's in What's the Matter with Kansas. I start mm-hmm. the sort of germ of it started in What's the Matter with Kansas. But once you get interested in that. So then I went out and I'm reading like the sociology of professionalism and, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich, by Mm -hmm. the way, used to write about this all the time. And you suddenly discover that this whole world that you aspired to and that you took as being the last word in uh, uh, rectitude in all sorts of different ways, like not just write in academic terms and scholarly terms, but write in taste terms. And uh, uh, these are the rightful rules, rulers of the world. You suddenly realize that that professionalism has its own pathologies, Mm -hmm. that this uh, way of life has all kinds of things wrong, that this way of life that we admire and that you and I wanted to be, that it has all sorts of things wrong with it. And uh, these things are going totally unquestioned because, of course, the sorry, I just knocked into the microphone, getting animated because the people at the top, the professionals at the top are not interested in asking those questions. And if you're like me, if you're like me and you see like this really, really interesting line of reasoning and line of inquiry that no one wants to talk about, you're going to take that road. (laughs) And that's where and I saw in some ways, I think I am being. True to my calling as an intellectual by insisting on this very difficult and I think for some people very painful line of inquiry. And by the way, this which brings us back to what something that I, I said last night. Look, I write in a degraded form. I write political books. Uh, mm-hmm. They sell. You know, but I have real ideas in there. And all the stuff about the professional class, uh, the li- you know liberal culture, everything that we've been talking about, that's that is a serious, uh, serious uh, you know, intellectual subject. And yes, I frame it 
in in a, in a work about politics and about the Democrats and Republicans, and mm-hmm. that's that's just that's because that's 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 how I do everything. And that's days. also how somebody but, sells too. I mean, if you wrote if you wrote a true, book and about I make a living. Professionalism. And I, make a li- I don't I don't write these things. The history of professionalism. It probably probably yeah. Just would, just take a guess here. Yeah. It probably would not do so well. <laughs> yeah. But you couch it in terms of of liberals versus uh, conservatives, R's versus D's. Uh, it suddenly is. It, Whoa! It becomes something very topical and very urgent, and um, and actually, but here's the thing, Anna. This is not being discussed. Mm-hmm. Okay, even after Trump, this book has been out for a year, and it's catching on now. By the way, I've been going all over the world. That people talk about it in other countries, but in this country, this is. I mean, I, I said when I started this subject, hey, look, here's a, here is a way of analyzing class in America and politics in America that that seems both very true and yet which no one is talking about, and they're still not talking about it. This is fascinating. And I also wanted to point out, though, that, that your sort of journey um, out of grad school and becoming aware of the professional class and seeing it as a, a not discussed subject and it having real structural ramifications in, you know, academia, for one, also had real world impacts on policy that affected everyone's lives. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that's the thing that I feel like I saw in your work and also came to see myself, which is that the professionalization of an, of the intellectual class, what that led to yes. was like the fucking third way. Right? Yes, exactly. I mean, like, no, this has been enormously consequential about, in, in a disastrous way. Right. Bill Clinton, Clinton, welfare reform, the Bill Clinton like, the professionalization, NAFTA. Yep. NAFTA is like, he's listening to professional economists and not to labor unions. And he's like, you don't have PhDs. And guess what? They turned out to be right about that. Yeah. Or <laughs> the economists turned out to be wrong. Right. And, or, or you look at the professionalization of journalism, by the way, a fascinating thing, mm-hmm. because journalism is both ultra professionalized at the top level, right. Washington Post, New York Times, and is collapsing everywhere else. And ultra and the, high paid at the top level. Yes. I mean, people don't yes. realize that. Like, there's this very, very, there's an incredibly, like, two-tiered system that reflects income inequality in the rest of America um, in journalism, which is that the people at the very top make six figures or more. I, I know about this firsthand. Right. And <laughs> then, used to be one of them. Right. And then the people who are not name brands that you have heard of before make very little money. And then how that shape that shape. Like, the Kansas City Star is might as well disappear. I mean, and it or, shapes coverage, um, not just in the way that it closes bureaus and closes yeah. coverage of, of things like labor, but identify with the with the administration. So these guys look at Hillary Clinton, and they're by the way they look at Trump, and they're like, "This is in, this man is incredibly obnoxious. We can't understand why anyone would vote for mm-hmm. him. Not a single paper in this country, or maybe one or two, endorses the guy. Yeah. Hillary Clinton. They look at, and they can't see how anyone." could dislike Hillary Clinton. Their love for her, their passion for her was without reservation because she is one of them, a peer. And that's really interesting. But it, this goes, this is all over the place. The bank bailouts and then Obama refusing to, you know, do the sort of Franklin Roosevelt thing on Wall Street, yeah. you know, or uh, Obama hanging around with Mark Zuckerberg. You know, Obama doing favors for or, Big Pharma. Um, Richard Branson. I mean, I love those well, pictures. Well, Obamacare, where, where right. Big Pharma is like, you know, written into it, that they get whatever they want out of this. It's like, why? Mm-hmm. Why do that incredible favor for these people? Because they are his people, professional class. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, yeah, the class interpretation explains a lot. But it is very uncomfortable for the people who are the gatekeepers to the media in this country. I ask you one last question. So you live in D.C.? You're going to ask about Australia. 
<laughs> no. How was the beer? <laughs> did you meet any kangaroos? Why, yes, I did. They were cute. <laughs> you live in D.C. You've referenced that many times. I used to live in D.C. too. Um, we knew each other in D.C. Um, what's that like for you? Like, do you just like walk around angry all the time? Well, y- yeah. <laughs> How do you think I write this stuff? <laughs> Look, a- a- as I grow older, you you said it already. I am mellowing. I don't throw my pages mm-hmm. on the floor anymore. the The big uh, obstacle or pitfall for me is contentment. Uh, that I can't if it if I get too happy, and I have, by the way, a beautiful life, and I have a, a beautiful family, and we live in a, in a a wonderful house in a nice neighborhood, and but I grow fact flowers. That's true. I have met his. I have met your lovely family. Yes, and I grow beautiful flowers in the yard, and but the the huge danger for me is is becoming complacent and happy, and I have to be. I have to. I have things that I do to to stir myself up and make myself mad. Um, do tell. Can, well, well, some of them just come naturally. I'll just mention one the other day. Being in an airport. <laughs> You talk about the, you know, like professional class assumptions just in your face. It's like, you know, diamond class million milers may board at your leisure. And it's just like, you know, (laughs) but everything about airports drives you up the wall. It's like you're in a propaganda chamber for, you know, management theory, you know, all the the posters on the wall and like people. Yeah. I'm sorry. I need to have lunch. My uh, my, my words are disappearing. <laughs> They're just evaporating here. I don't know what you're doing to me, Anna, but uh, I'm I'm losing my my vocabulary that's, by the second. Yeah, that's the point of the whole show. We have to talk until people like start to like not make it's sense. It's just faint, and then it's it's it's, it's it works. It's a, it's a tactic that works. Um, do you have an idea? Do you ever feel yourself getting too content? Like, does, what- oh, of course, it happens. Like I said, I have a beautiful family and a nice. Uh, uh, home and 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 a garden and you know, my life is 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 is, is should be a very happy one and that is a, that is a professional risk for me mm. and so I have to take steps I have to take measures <laughs> to ensure that I'm irritated otherwise I wouldn't write what am I going to do yeah, write like like poems this I'm reminded why are poems we, of I, songs of contentment I'm reminded of why, why we are friends actually in this. Um, because I actually, so, you know, I'm, I don't think of it quite as systematically as you do. Like, I don't think of it as like my job depends on staying angry. Like I've been doing this for long enough that I know it's there. Like that, you know, rage and dissatisfaction is within me. Um, but I do like watch Fox every day. So oh, yeah, that, that'll, that'll do it. Do that'll it. Do yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and I, I fly a lot, but I'm, I now have, I'm now platinum medallion so oh, no sorry did um, i step on your toes there <laughs> your professional you know class toes but you know the means of production do belong to the people so i just like walk through with the, like my fist raised i like walk through with my fist raised and that makes i did it go okay. and get tsa pre-check by the uh, way uh, traitor last traitor <laughs> all right we're gonna wrap it up um thank you for coming um i really hey it was my pleasure it. and i love being here in minneapolis it's a lovely city. Don't tell too many people. We want to keep it, you know, on the down on low. The down low. Um, uh, that's, the, that's the reason why the, the cold weather is actually awesome. It just keeps all the people that aren't strong enough to take it out. But thank you, Tom. Uh, your book, Listen Liberal, incredibly relevant to this moment. I will have to check in with you again sometime. You got it, man. Anytime. All right. And that's it for the show. Just want to thank you for listening again. 
If you enjoyed this episode or other episodes, or even if you didn't really enjoy it, but you just want to do me a solid, um, you could rate and review this uh, podcast on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast. You can also like tell your friends about it. Um, you can show them how to use podcasts because it turns out that that's something that not a lot of people actually know how to do. Um, when Tom was in the studio, one of the first things he asked me was like, so how do you listen to podcasts? And I was actually going to use that moment like as a teachable, you know, moment uh, and maybe walk him through it. But I realized that that would be a bad use of the audience's time since you are listening to this, a podcast, which again, I want to thank you for doing. If you have feedback on the show, you can deliver it via Twitter to at crooked underscore friends, uh, or you can send an email to with friends like pod at gmail.com. Again, that's with friends like pod at gmail.com. Uh, we've been getting lots of really interesting uh, comments and questions. Uh, we will be doing another episode with uh, listeners submitted queries about relationships and politics soon, I promise. Just keep listening. We drop every Friday. See you next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.